Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 123 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Non-trademark Mickey Mouse, hello. <laughs> and oh. my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Oh, you're so lucky that Steamboat Willie is coming into the public domain next year. Are you saying that because you're in Anaheim, Andrew? Give us some context here. Well, I mean, that's the context. I mean, I was going to make a whole thing out of it, but yeah, I'm in Anaheim. No, sorry. Where you, you... Disneyland is. <laughs> Currently, Andrew is pistoning his hips up and down really bouncily and whistling with a super circular mouth. Yep. That's all I exactly. know about Steamboat Willie. No, in case it seems, what I said seems terrifying, I'm, I'm just working in Anaheim uh, and... That requires sometimes long hours where you don't end up leaving the hotel, especially when the conference room you're working in is in the hotel. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm stuck in a hotel in I'm not because I'm locked there by Jillian or something. Andrew, is Jillian in the room with you staring at you? Uh, she's not staring, but she's on TikTok on headphones. So, yes. <laughs> Love it. Um, I think that it's pretty cool that Jillian's with you, Andrew. I just got to see you guys. I miss you guys. Yeah, we think it was cool to see you too, Billy. And Dylan and Maggie. (laughs) Yay. After Andrew left, we went to the LA Festival of Books this weekend. Ooh. We were only there briefly, maybe like an hour total, because we brought Maggie, which, you know, I don't know if anybody else out there, Pejos, has an almost three-year-old, but she was really stoked and excited, and she saw like three booths, and then she was done. She was like completely Mm. exhausted. We did see the writer of If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. We did. They were signing stuff. I I did learn something about myself, which is whenever I go to those fairs, I can't approach a booth because I have a really hard time not buying the person's book that they made. And especially with a kid now, because now she's talking to children's book authors that see like a glimmer of hope when they see Maggie running around and then Bailey will start like small talk with them. And so then you have to buy a book from them. And we went to one stand that was like every kind of children's book. And they're like, well, what's she into? And I'm like, I don't know. Unicorns are like, well, we got the book for you. And they pulled out the unicorn <laughs> one. It was very used car salesman. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I've learned that I have to rein myself in there. That's like a thousand bookstores lined up edge to edge for you. Exactly. With the added guilt that they've written the book themselves. That is true. When we talk about shame, we don't usually have to like look Dave Eggers in the face and tell him no. (laughs) (laughs) Dave Eggers wrote, if you give a mouse a cookie. Yeah. (laughs) Little known fact. Um, Wow. And then I'm about to go to Nashville to see some of my best friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My best friends. But anyway, while I'm there, it's Independent Bookstore Day. Which we all know, of course. Which we celebrate. Um, And I'm planning to go to some independent bookstores in Nashville with my friends. And I swear to God, I did not come up with this idea. This was them. They said, oh, it's Independent Bookstore Day. What if we all went to a bunch of bookstores, bought books, and then sat and read them? I'm stoked. I can see why these people are your friends. (laughs) Yeah, that does sound pretty Bailey ideal. Is this just going to be a hotel room in like six mirrors, like angled so that you reflect yourself and you're like, time to read now. Wow. No, I have real friends. But anyway, what are you guys been up to? Uh, I went on a camping trip with my wife and we live basically inside of a gigantic campsite, which is Northern California. So we only had to drive 15 minutes to get to the campground. Oh, nice. It was pretty cool. I powered through probably most of Death's End, uh, which I'm still very much enjoying. So yeah, it was a good good reading weekend. But Toby, have you read any other good books lately? 
Oh, I don't know. I, I I picked up this one. I don't know if anybody would be into it on the podcast. It's about this like podcaster who's interested in true crime, and mm. she becomes involved in the case and finds new. Uh, oh, oh, wait a minute, Bailey, did you make a sound? Mm. Yeah, I, I, Dylan. Anyway, th- this book is the new Rebecca Mackay. Um, oh, I I have some questions for you. Oh, great! I can't wait to discuss it too. It is so my jam. Oh, you read it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Mm. Oh wait, I have a copy of that too. Should I read it? Oh, you definitely should. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you wow. definitely should. Wow. I, I will have you know <laughs> that I was planning on packing that book to read with my sustained silent reading time with my friends. You're supposed to get a new book and uh, independent bookstore day and read that book, Bailey. So you can't. But Toby, you like it. You'll... You think I'm going to like it. Yeah, you're going to freaking love it. Mm. <laughs> you're going to love it so much. <laughs> um, yeah. I just w- I can't wait for it to be chosened in like six years. <laughs> once like once the numbers finally roll and roll up. I hate you guys, but I love you guys. Does anybody have any shame? No shame for me. I have shame again. Um, I got it in the same bookstore that I got it in the last one, Eureka Books. Uh, they have really good prices on some of their used books. And I was like, I got books last weekend. I can't do it again unless I can find one that I already really want and it's under $5. <laughs> and unfortunately, um, they had a copy of The Scar by China Mieville, um, which I've been looking for. And so, and it was like $4.75, so I had to get it. So shout out to Eureka Books for ruining my streak of not having shame. You're starting to sound like me, Toby, like being like, okay, if X, Y, Z, I'm allowed to get a book. Uh, Yeah, it's true. I got a new book, but I don't remember if I've already said it, so I don't think it counts as shame. What? (laughs) Barely. Uh, I got the book Immortality, A Love Story by Dana Stevens. It's a sequel to the book she had last year called Anatomy, A Love Story. I'm 20 books ahead of schedule. And yes, I read a book this week. 20 books ahead. Oh, my gosh. Eagle-eared pages will know that's only one better than last time, but I promise to step up my game before the next recording. Yeah, it's pretty good. But anyway, what'd you read? I read 10th of December, some stories by George Saunders. One, two, three, mm, four, son, son, son. five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Hi, hi, the 10th of December. That's better, Dylan. I liked it. All right. All right, so uh, this is a book that was hotly anticipated. Everyone was so amped when I got it. Everyone wants to hear this review, right? Yeah. Yes. So here we go. Here's a little introductory paragraph. Mm -hmm. George Saunders' collection of 10 bizarre, compact, and often powerful stories run the gamut from short elegies on broken families to investigations of the crushing impacts of illness to Lil Cockney aliens. (laughs) It's a work that plays between genres, often borrowing just the bits it needs to tell the story how it needs to be told. While the stories are wildly imaginative, the science fiction is often as simple and complex as the chemistry and feelings in our human minds. I remember loving this collection when I read it, but now that I think back on it, I only remember like one detail from one story. So I I feel like we probably remember, let's say it, Bailey, because I think I love this. I gave it five stars. I checked my Goodreads to make sure I didn't embarrass myself yet again um, and remember the wrong star rating. Is the detail you remember the women with their wire through their heads? The hanging women. Is that the same thing? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there <Yeah>. you go. <laughs> wow. Apparently, that's a good detail, apparently. So, yeah. Andrew, top that for a review. <laughs> okay. I'll actually review it. <laughs> um, so it's hard to give more context to this book because, as we've already said, it's short stories. There's 10 of them. They vary in length. One is only about two pages long. The others are 
50 to 60. So you get a quite a variety of different sampler sizes. When I get into sort of L's and Orcs, I'll talk a little bit about some of my favorites. But overall, you know, Saunders's style is, is something that I haven't really experienced a lot of before. It's very heavy on... Uh, what's the best way to say this? Not caring about correct grammar for the sake of telling the story better. It's very mm. heavy on perspective shifts. It's very heavy on sort of environmental and emotional changes in the characters. And it's very heavy on, uh, I don't know, like experimental drugs being put on into humans. That's like, that mm-hmm. comes up a lot. Oh. And the drugs always have interesting names. For example, nightlife spelled K-N-I-G-H-T-L-Y-F-E. And so, yeah, you get things that range from breakdowns of being evicted to like trying to tell the whole story of a family home in a few paragraphs to um, a dual narrative of a boy who's pretending he's chasing aliens uh, and runs into a man trying to um, try to die by suicide. So you have mm, a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before I go into my orcs and elves, has everybody read this book? Yes. Yes. Am I the last oh, wow. one to read this book? Yes. Wow, that's embarrassing for me. Maggie hasn't read it. Are you sure she hasn't picked it up off the shelf and like turned turned every page and said all done? Honestly, she might have. You guys look at the baby monitor right now and she's just like paging through it. (laughs) So first, the elves. First of all, it's crazy inventive, both in terms of ideas, but also in terms of execution. I sort of already alluded to this, but I'm a huge fan and I'm on record of saying I'm a huge fan of this, of using style and grammatical changes to convey changes in perspective. He does this both between characters, for example, that dual narrative where you switch between different perspectives and he, each character has a very different way of talking because they're different people, which is how it would be. And I really like that. Um, or, and this happens a lot in the book as well, I'll call out specifically one story where it happens a fair amount, changes in the same character uh, based on either external or internal stimuli. So I already mentioned sort of the experimental drugs that are being used. One of my favorite stories uh, in the book is called Escape from Spiderhead. You might yeah. be vaguely familiar with it because uh, it was made into a Netflix film called Spiderhead. Oh, yeah. Uh, relatively recently. Sorry, um, in front of the podcast, Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> in front of the mm-hmm. podcast, Miles Teller, and enemy of the podcast. Um, I don't know who else is in the movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that one in particular... The premise is, and I don't want to spoil too much about these stories because a lot of them are short and like giving away too much about the conceit might like spoil the reading. But I'll tell you, a man who is has committed crimes is doing an alternative to being in prison and is being experimented on for, for medical science. And so he has this like port where they put in whatever drug they need to, to test. And the story is a series of experiments that are run on him. Mm. But... He is not the most eloquent narrator in his like default form and his base level. He like barely finished high school. He's not like adding any extra flourishes that he needs to. But then he takes this like brain enhancement drug and immediately the writing like or not even immediately like sort of steadily the writing becomes more and more eloquent and more and more like flowery and unnecessary. So that's a really good example of that. And that is, I think, definitely in my top three stories of the book. I don't know if any of you remember that now that I've given you that hint. I do remember it. As you're saying really all these these stories, I'm remembering them. They're popping up in my head, but yeah. Yeah, me too. Yes. So I'm just really kind of a sucker for that sort of style of writing. Uh, I'm not going to include any quotes, mostly because it's hard to find a, a perfect representative. Also because we're a clean podcast and George Saunders has some fun with the English language in all its forms. <laughs> mm. So moving on to an, another elf, which is just sort of my personal highlight of the book. Um 
Another highlight was the shortest story in the book, which is called Sticks. It's very simple. I can't explain it more than it follows a lawn decoration. Mm. That's a little mm. weird. I don't remember that one. Does it have a string through its head? <laughs> it there's does not. There's other stories. Mm. That's the only one. Mm. Okay. Yeah, there are literally it. nine other stories in this book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then my absolute favorite uh, story in the book was 10th of December, which is the, the title story, obviously. Far and away my favorite. That's the one where I referenced that it's a dual narrative. Tween, who is has a very rich imaginary life, which feels very real, but then you sort of realize that it's you know, all in his head, and he's he's like just giving a, a glimpse a glimpse into his imagination, uh, and a like very old, very sick man who wants to end his life, and it's mm-hmm. a, it's a very powerful, very interesting, very like well balanced story. I do remember that one, Andrew, and I I think that actually was despite the wires in the head one being maybe a little bit more memorable. I think that was my favorite upon reading as well. The story that you mentioned. Well, I'm glad. The story that everyone <laughs> yeah. keeps referencing is the Semplica Girl Diaries. Ah, uh, we made him talk about it, Bailey. <laughs> um, which I liked. Um, it sort of ranked more in the middle for me. It's also the longest one, and I am <laughs> lazy, so maybe that went against it. <laughs> and honorable mention for the first story in the collection, which is called Victory Lap, which is another, it's actually a tri-narrative, and that he does a lot of the same sort of techniques, which I thought were really interesting. And ultimately, he just he has a great way of telling stories that are sort of possible in the real world, but feel wholly imaginative. He brings in science fiction mm-hmm. sometimes, but it just... It feels like a, all the stories feel like genre stories, even if you actually break it down. Some of them have like no genre elements to it. It just sort of is the way he writes. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And a final elf is that he really is a, nails the balance between funny and sad. I won't spoil specific moments, but it's like it's a really powerful combination that a lot of people try to do and not a lot of people do super duper well. And I think uh, he does a really good job with it. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm about to go into my orcs. Do you guys have anything nice to say before we go into that wicked Mordor land? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think he's, I, I'm having a hard time articulating it as well. But like, it's like, you know, a George Sanders story when you see one. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like he has an aesthetic that I really like. And he writes about lots of different things. But it, you can always tell it's one of his stories. He's one of the few authors that you have to go back and reread it. Sometimes like you'll read a page. It's like, I don't know what just happened though and you're like wait did that just happen the way i think it did wait after you have to reread it and it's like normally that's the side of bad writing but in this case like because like you get the emotional impact of what you're supposed to feel but it's like wait i don't know what happened Mm -hmm. yeah i am i ended up reading his uh book a swim in the pond in the rain which is where he goes through i think it's seven russian short stories it's basically a short story course that he teaches at syracuse um so if you want to take that course for free buy that book or take it for 19 dollars or whatever anyway um in it he mentions his writing process is that he wants every single sentence to be like a little engine that thrusts the reader forward faster and faster and that is a good um, summary of what it feels like to read a George Saunders short story is you just keep going and going and the language just kind of propels you forward. I'm sure we'll get into this in the facts, but for all, of course, all other listeners are listening to watching uh, the TV show Lucky Hank. It's just you, Dylan. It's just me. Um, but George Saunders kind of appears on it and he literally says that exact same thing. That's like one of the lines he says. There you go. Hmm. I'll get into it during facts. Okay. Okay, well, watch out, Toby. Someone's coming for you. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Tell us about the orcs, Andrew. We're ready. Okay, 
Welcome to Mordor, where the orcs do play, and they try to get hobbits in a major way. Um, <laughs> so here's ultimately sort of what the orcs come down to being. You know, it, not all of them are bangers. Can't be mm-hmm. all bangers all the time. Mm. There were a few times where I just kind of felt the themes were a little too close. None of them like were complete total bummers for me. And there's only one where, like you guys were saying, I, I felt like I just didn't get it. There's one where I just, I kind of, I, I read it and I then reread some pages. And I just don't know that I 100% got it. <laughs> but there's only one of those. And like, if it's nine out of 10 that way, that's an outstanding hit rate for a boy, book of short stories. Mm. Way better than my boy Hemingway did <laughs> a few episodes ago. Um, Though hard to come on the heels of our friend uh, Ted Chang in Exhalation, which I read at the end of last year, which was, I think, 10 stories and 10 hits. Um, yeah. And I think to put a finer point on that orc, because this is all really sort of part of one singular orc. One of the things that sort of felt repetitive in particular was how many of the stories revolved around a man who like, quote unquote, someone would call like a loser who's like kind of muddling his way through life. Almost all the stories feature that. And that's fine in like a in like doses but like when that kind of becomes the central character of most of your stories it is a little like okay we could try some spins on here and try to do something a little different and then tied into that is there are very few female characters in this book and even fewer who like had their own agency in any of the stories and that's not a requirement to be a good book I'm not saying that necessarily, but it did stand out when you had 10 different opportunities to create 10 different complete narratives. It was almost always they served either like a romantic placeholder position or like were a mother that was like a peripheral character. And that's just, you know, you get 10 shots. It, I, it just I noticed it. And that's not something that you like want to notice in your stories. Mm-hmm. But that all said, I did really like this book. They're both readable and rereadable stories because it's you, you kind of feel like you're not quite getting the whole thing. And if you read it again, maybe you'll notice different things. It has that sort of quality. I'm torn between four and five stars. I think ultimately I'm going to go with four, but it's like a very high four, if that makes sense. Hmm. No half stars. I know, it's, but it's a, I, that's why I'm saying four, Bailey. <laughs> Forced me to pick one and I went, I went, I rounded down this time because... And I also just think maybe part of it was I was told for, I found out when I bought this book, I bought it in June, 2016 Hmm. for seven years. I've been told you are going to love this book. And so any sort of quibble became magnified at that point. Yeah. I think we overhyped it. Yeah. Never a great reading experience. Yeah. So it, it just happens that way, but I will check it out again. Maybe I will feel more warmly to it, but that's uh, my review of the 10th of December. Well, that was a lovely review, Andrew. Um, Toby, do you have any facts on your friend and mine, George Saunders? (laughs) Yes, um, I do. I do. Um, You might remember that he's been on the pod before when I read Lincoln and the Bardo. Five stars. Oh, yeah. Um, Andrew did some great facts about George Saunders, so I'm going to give you a short biography, and then I'm going to give you a pretty like long excerpt from an interview that I think is fantastic. So first of all, George Saunders was born on December 2nd, 1958. He's an American writer of short stories, essays, novellas, children's books, and novels. Uh, it's a surprise he wasn't at the LA Festival of Books, or maybe he was. We don't know. Um, His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, McSweeney's, and GQ. He's also contributed a weekly column, American Psyche, to The Guardian's Weekend magazine between 2006 and 2008. 
He's a professor at Syracuse University, um, and he has won many, many awards. He, I'm not going to go through them all because there's so many. Um, he's won, he's received the MacArthur Fellowship. That's a big one. Um, and the real big one is that his novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, in 2017, won the Booker Prize. And he was the second American ever to win that prize. You're welcome, George Saunders. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Dylan was instrumental in that choice. Um, so the rest of this is going to be an excerpt. Uh, most of it is the answer to one question um, because I found it so interesting. Uh, this is an uh, interview in The New Yorker. Um, and the interviewer here is Deborah Treisman. And she actually helped edit many of the stories that first appeared in The New Yorker and then went on to be part of 10th of December. So I think that's an interesting cool. interview relationship. Well, isn't she fancy? Mm-hmm. Yes. So Deborah asks... 10th of December is your fourth book of stories. Does this one feel different for you than the three that came before? Prepare yourself for a long answer. (laughs) And this is abridged, this answer. George says, it does, yes. For one thing, it's selling, which is nice and unusual for me. But there is something tonally different about it, too, I think, relative to the previous three. I read it during a pretty rich period. Our daughters were finishing high school and going on to college. Sort of like, wow, I did not know that life could contain this much happiness. So I think that some of that feeling worked its way into the book. In which story? Yeah, the one that most closely has a girl about to go to college. Interesting choice. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he's claiming that he wrote them about his daughter's going to college, just that he was in a happy mood. Words are only literal and you cannot take (laughs) any inspiration for anything that's not literal. Okay, cool. This is, he goes way back. Paula and I had met in grad school and had this crazily romantic head over heels courtship and got engaged in three weeks. Just a classic whirlwind romance. I'd never met anyone like her. She'd been a dancer with the Harkness Ballet and a model with Elite and been married once before and traveled all over and lived a really exciting, elevated life. I sensed correctly that she had a lot to teach me, so we just leapt in. We decided we wanted to have kids right away and got pregnant on the honeymoon. And after that, everything happened really fast. We were both writing and working. And I think we had this idea that we would quickly make it and emerge victorious and get back to the relatively carefree lives we'd had before. When we had our first daughter, Paula was on a fellowship studying with Toni Morrison at SUNY Albany, and I had just started working for a pharmaceutical company as a tech writer. But then her fellowship ended and that job played out. It started to dawn on us that this writing thing might take longer to pay off than we'd expected. We moved to Rochester. I started working as a tech writer for an environmental company, and Paula was teaching two or three sections of writing at a local college. We were busy, but not getting ahead and maybe even falling a little behind. It wasn't the gulag by any stretch, and we were very happy, but we could also feel the pressure and see that in terms of our peer group, i.e. other parents around, we were sort of bringing up the rear, affably, but still. And we could feel a certain train coming on the track, namely the years when the kids would be in school, when months and the stability and flexibility that comes with it would really start to matter. I think we both felt as though we had got a hold of this incredible treasure, our relationship, our kids, our little home, and then suddenly realized that it was possible in our system to genuinely fail. We understood that being broke or having to work too hard in order not to be broke was a grace erosion system and that we too might fall victim to it. Getting through that and finding yourself on the other end of the tunnel, it opens up a certain space in the artistic mind, I think. Living through those 25 years and then making a fictive world that had only pitfalls and misfortune would feel false and or incomplete. If you think of work of fiction as a kind of scale model of the world, then the positive valences where things turn out better than you thought they would ought to be in there somewhere too. Something like that. So in this book, although there's still a lot of cruelty and darkness and all that, I found my eye being drawn to the moments when things don't totally go down the S word. (laughs) 
and asking, well, how does that happen? I started to feel that at certain points in some of the stories, the most interesting aesthetic motion, the plot twist, if you will, was the one that swerved away from what I might call the habitually catastrophic. Isn't that an interesting answer? Mm -hmm. It is. Quite the answer. Not relatable in any way to being a parent. No way. I don't compare myself (laughs) to the other kids in preschool. Parents? No, certainly not. Uh Well, I compare myself to the other kids at preschool, and I'm like, I'm so much better at reading than them. I know all the colors. I can tell time. Um, yeah, I just love that answer. Because, like, It's so often the case that literary short stories just hammer you into the ground with the most depressing details that could possibly hit you in the face with. And I really did think this book was an optimistic <laughs> for this type of genre. And I thought that was an interesting answer as to why that was. Mm-hmm. I have a quick answer here for my last bit of facts about him. Um, and it's a long question, but basically she's asking um, why he seems drawn to a fantastical or genre style. George answers, I found out early that whenever I tried to write directly from life, the stories tended to fall flat. I don't really know why. There just wasn't much pop in the language. So at some point I started to say, forget the real world and concentrating on getting the line to line stuff to be propulsive. Concentrate on drawing the reader in and keeping her in by any means necessary. And the primary means for me seemed to be sentences. I started concentrating on making two or three sentence bursts that I could live with. And then what I found happening, this would have been during the writing of Civil War, Land and Bad Decline, was that even though the settings and situations in the stories were sort of cartoonish and overwrought, my real beliefs and anxieties were being mapped out onto these fictive worlds more powerfully and exactly, albeit inadvertently and in a sort of funhouse manner, than they ever had in anything more real life that I'd written. And in fact, the weird thing was that these new stories were sort of leading me to understand what I believed about the life I was living in a way that no amount of rational thought could have done. Yeah. 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 That's lovely. What a surprise. George Saunders is a very like, elaborate and uh, comprehensive interview subject. Um, another fact about George Saunders is he just wants one mousetrap. Just one. If you guys haven't seen it, he did a video for the website ClickHole. And you can just Google George Saunders mousetrap where he is on the phone trying to order one mousetrap, not a box of 10. Or if they could just throw out the other nine, if he could just have one. It's very funny. He's yeah. very in on the joke. Yes. I like it. And you might also recognize nice. his performance from the hit AMC <laughs> drama, Lucky Hank. <laughs> Dylan's, I, Dylan's obsessed with Lucky Hank. Where he is played by Brian Husky. He's, oh. <laughs> but it's like, why are they doing this? And in it, he plays a version of himself that's trying to help out the titular character, Lucky Hank, kind of deal with the <laughs> problem of... <laughs> Please tell us more about Lucky Hank. Well, it's the fact that we so we, deep when in we, the woods. Is the fact that he's playing a college professor that is going through an existential crisis of being a failed writer. And so when you were reading that quote, it's like, oh, so that's why they chose George Saunders to be the guest. Hmm. Well, thank you for those facts, everyone. And that's 10th of December by George Saunders. Ten stars. Just kidding. Four stars. Lucky Hank. Five stars. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Andrew just gave us a fantastic review of the book that he read <laughs> Bailey did you read a book? I did mm. uh-huh. um, yes uh, what Toby is leading to so artfully is that I read <laughs> The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green which is a book about oh. reviewing things on a five star scale <laughs> <laughs> yes we was the it. reason you were pacing that weird because you wanted to make sure you said Anthropocene right because 
Yes. How dare you? <laughs> I, I also have literally been saying to myself this entire time we've been recording, it's like Anthropocene, Anthropocene, Anthropocene. I didn't listen to the podcast just to hear him say it to make sure I had it right. No, certainly not. Um, anyway, this is John Green, your friend and mine. I'm a big John Green fan. Like I'm not, John Green has a lot of stands, a huge following called the Nerd Army. I'm not that far in, but I have read every book he's written, um, this being the last one. Um, And so I was excited to read it because it's John Green doing nonfiction. I know he does, like, I've seen, like, the YouTube videos where he's talking about history, but I've never really read the writing of it. Um, And this concept um, came out when John Green was really stuck after his last book, Turtles All the Way Down, came out, and he wanted to do something creative, but didn't want to write a novel. And so he came up with this idea, and a friend told him it should be a podcast. And the basic concept is there's a topic, and John Green talks about it, almost always, yes, always connecting it to his his life um, and sharing a lot of interesting facts um, and research about that thing. And then at the end, he gives a review out of five stars. The Anthropocene is a word for all of the time in which humans have been alive. Um, so it's like basically reviewing everything. Everywhere. All at once. Um, (laughs) And, you know, there's many chapters. Some of them are longer than others. They're all pretty short, um, but they range from reviewing something like sunsets to teddy bears to Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest. And, you know, it's charming. It's really, I would say, kind of a veiled memoir. A lot of it talks about his life, Mm. his experiences. It was interesting to me to find out what it was like for him to sort of be propelled into this fame and to have people like showing up on his doorstep and this kind of thing. I thought it was a little ironic that he found that to be really horrifying. Not that it's not horrifying, but like that's literally the plot point in Fault in Our Stars is like tracking down the author. Anywho, um, I love his writing. I think he has some really brilliant turns of phrase. I like his perspective. I like hearing about his neuroses, his mental health, because, you know, I don't struggle with the same thing he does, but there's certain things he describes that I understand that I don't feel like everybody does. Like, for example, he talks about the satisfaction and joy he gets from writing his signature 250,000 times within a few month period, um, because I thought this was special, but he signed every single one of the books in the first printing of the Anthropocene Reviewed. So mine is signed, and I was like, oh, this is special, but he did that for everybody. You know, the book is obviously pretty meta, like he talks about it in the book, and so, you know, he's talking about, I'm using my favorite Indigo Sharpie, and like, I like look to the front, like, oh, he used Indigo for mine, maybe he's talking about my signature. Uh And and then there's little cutesy like footnotes and reviews throughout the physical copy of the book where he'll be like, you know, I give the copyright page two stars or whatever it is, um, which I thought was very cute. I also learned things. I learned um, not only about his life, but history facts, such as how scratch and sniff stickers were developed and how they work. The drama between, between the people who believe that Brontosaurus exists and the people who think it's just another form of the Apatosaurus, and also his undying love for the Liverpool Football Club. Andrew, I feel like you would very mm. much relate to that. And you said you are familiar with his love of Liverpool. Yes, he uh, primarily now tweets from his sports account, which I which I follow, and we have the same interest. Oh, you mean like from Ted Lasso? Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you a sense of his writing, but I think he does have this general 
love and appreciation for people and this hopefulness amid a lot of difficult things, both like that he's going through personally and that the world is going through or that history's gone through. He has a sense of hopefulness that shines through. So I will read a quote so you can get a sense. This is at the end of the introduction. At the end of his life, the great picture book author and illustrator Maurice Sendak said on the NPR show Fresh Air, I cry a lot because I miss people. I cry a lot because they die and I can't stop them. They leave me and I love them more. He said, I'm finding out as I'm aging that I'm in love with the world. It has taken me all my life up till now to fall in love with the world, but I've started to feel it the last couple years. To fall in love with the world isn't to ignore or or overlook suffering, both human and otherwise. For me anyway, to fall in love with the world is to look up at the night sky and feel your mind swim before the beauty in the distance of the stars. It is to hold your children while they cry, to watch as the sycamore trees leaf out in June. When my breastbone starts to hurt and my throat tightens and tears well in my eyes, I want to look away from feeling. I want to deflect with irony or anything else that will keep me from feeling directly. We all know how loving ends. I want to fall in love with the world anyway, to let it crack me open. I want to feel what there is to feel while I am here. Sendak ended that interview with the last words he ever said in public, live your life, live your life, live your life. Here's my attempt to do so. So, lovely. Bailey, you know, it's funny. I I read this book too, and that interview excerpt really stuck out to me as well. Really affected me as well. I'm glad. I'm glad you chose it. Those are all my elves. I will go into a few orcs, which I think John Green would appreciate. It's a little weird to be reviewing a book about reviewing things, but I feel like he would understand. I found... He even references it in the book. There were a lot of quotes in this book. Yeah, He's a very smart guy. He referenced a lot of different books, a lot of different scholars, but it's a lot of quotes. It's a lot of information. Um, and I think the structure of it, because the chapters are so short, he can fit so many different reviews in there. They start to get repetitive. I don't know. It, it's kind of like having too much ice cream at once. It's like, okay, yes. I get it. Um, I, I need a little break. 100% agree. And, you know, maybe it's because, you know, it's well written and I wanted to read it fast. But then I was like, oh, I ate too much ice cream. I went too fast. And maybe it would be better to consume it as a podcast because then you could listen to him um, talk about it versus, you know, as it comes out week by week versus binging the podcast. Like I thought this was going to be a four or five star maybe when I started. But by the end, I settled on a solid three stars for this book. No half stars, Bailey. I know. There's so many good <laughs> things about it, but I think it's like solid and not my favorite John Green, not my favorite nonfiction book. Solid three stars. What did you think, Toby? Uh, I just have to agree with you 100%. Um, I thought, especially about the thing about consuming it as a podcast, like I could see if I waited a week in between each of these episodes or essays, I would come around to be like looking forward to my dose of optimism from John Green peppered with a smart quote. It did literally feel like a podcast episodes because they followed a formula, you know, interesting fact, personal anecdote, interesting quote more fact, more personal anecdote. And it's just, and like a lot of them hit the same exact tone. It's a great sentiment and I really echo it and I think it's admirable. Um, so yeah, I, same with me. I started out being like, man, this is going to be like a four or five star. And then, um, I don't know. Did it need to be a book? Should it have remained a podcast? I think so. Did you end up on three stars as well? Yes, I did. Three yeah. stars. Exactly. No half stars. Yeah, we don't, we don't recommend other podcasts on this show, so don't go listen to it. No other podcast exists except for this one and the one about Lucky Hank that Dylan just started. Yes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Toby, I know we've covered John Green before. Andrew read Fault in Our Stars, if I recall. But what facts do you have on our, true. our favorite 
John Green. Um, and maybe they're going to be doubled up, but that was an old episode, so deal with it. <laughs> um, John Michael Green was born on August 24th, 1977. He's an author. He's a YouTuber. He's a podcaster. And he's a philanthropist. He's a very successful author. He's sold more than 50 million copies of his books in print worldwide, including The Fault in Our Stars from 2012. Heard of it. Which is one of the best-selling books of all time. So take that, Hemingway. Um, take that, Bible. Um, his rapid rise to fame and his uh, specific voice um, are credited with creating a major shift in the young adult fiction market. So his books became popular and, and truly changed the genre a little bit. Um, he's also well known for his work in online video. I uh, did a YouTube series that Bailey mentioned for a long time uh, with his brother, Hank Green. You can check those out. What's the name of the series um, again? Does anyone remember? The history one's called Crash Course. Yeah, his brother runs most of the YouTube stuff. All of his books have received positive critical reception. Um, all of them have appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. And his books have been translated into 55 languages. When reviewing the young adult novel Winger, A.J. Jacobs of the New York Times used the term green lit to describe young adult books that contain, quote, sharp dialogue, defective authority figures, occasional boozing, unrequited crushes, and one or more heartbreaking twists. Bailey, having read every single John Green book, would you agree that that's a accurate description i would and i like that greenlit i haven't heard of that i want to give a special shout out to my faves will grayson will grayson looking for alaska probably my favorites besides faults and our stars thank you you're welcome nice nice <laughs> um there's also a quote from the wall street journal that says quote some credit him with ushering in a new golden era for contemporary realistic literary teen fiction following more than a decade of dominance by books about young wizards sparkly vampires and dystopia Edith Rick Reardon. What's one of the things I love about it is like, I think this was like the first, I don't know if the first, but this was a really good contemporary YA where I was like, I really like mm -hmm. this and I like it now. And I would have liked this when I was 14, you know? Yeah. And you, you really do think like, oh, after that, there's all sorts of stuff that's a lot more grounded that becomes like on the bestseller list for YA. His books are pretty much constantly being banned. Um, there are lots of people who are very upset with the content of his books um, and the fact that they're aimed at teenagers. Uh, Looking for Alaska was named the most challenged book of 2015 by the American Library Association. People complained about the book's offensive language and sexually explicit descriptions, which I think if you've read the book, you know, <laughs> a bit silly. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, in a special happening in September 2022, a group of parents attempted to ban the novel from all Orange County, Florida school libraries, which was the district that Green attended when he was a child. So Rude. that's fun. Yeah. Um, the rest of this is going to be an excerpt from an interview from Shondaland.com, which is a website about the work of Shonda Rhimes. You may know her as the creator and writer behind Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, Bridgerton, etc. So that exists. We're all familiar with Shondaland. And private practice. Yeah, and private practice. I said etc. The interviewer here is Scott Newmeyer. In the introduction, you say you didn't want to write in code anymore. Do you feel like this book coming out has kind of broken that for you? Do you feel like you're a little freer now? And John Green answers, yeah, I do. It's much scarier, to be honest, Scott, because it is me. And I feel like a huge bundle of exposed nerve endings, which I've never really felt like before when a book is coming out. One of the pleasures of writing fiction for me is that it feels like an escape from the self. It feels like a way out of this very strange situation that I'm in where I can only see the world from one set of eyes and inside of one consciousness the whole time I'm here. Writing nonfiction wasn't really a break from that. It was an attempt to reckon with it, I guess. Hmm. 
Um, these short lyrical essays about everyday life also have this undertone of hopefulness to them. You set out to write and publish this kind of book as a balm for everyone who's been dealing with so much over the past year and honestly over the past four years. And John answers, yes, I wanted it to be a balm. I also wanted it to be a full-throated. Def- <laughs> I also wanted it to be a full-throated defense of hope because there is so much suffering and injustice, and it is overwhelming and it is infuriating. But for me, at least, despair isn't effective. I think I say in the book at one point, uh, I wouldn't have a problem with despair if it made me a more ardent advocate for justice. But it doesn't. It just destroys me. And so I think despair is ultimately incorrect. But I also think that it's unhelpful. Like it just doesn't work. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help me do the work that I need to do in the world. And so I wanted to write a hopeful book. But I also wanted to write a book that advocates for hope. I think you succeeded. You already mentioned this briefly, but uh, you know we're going to get in the nitty gritty details here about signed books. And Andrew, just listen, listen with all your soul. Sean says, when you published The Fault in Our Stars, you kind of started this movement of signing an enormous amount of books prior to release. The practice has gotten much more popular now with the pandemic, but you really kind of ushered that in. For this book, you signed every copy. Why is it so important to you that readers are able to get a signed copy of your book so easily? John says, uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because I spent 500 hours signing the Anthropocene Reviewed. And if you're going to, wow, that's so long. (laughs) If you're going to do something for that many hours at night and on the weekends, you need a pretty solid answer. In that process, I've come up with a million different reasons. And sometimes I answer with one reason and sometimes I answer with another. The book process has become so mechanized and so distant and sort of inhuman, especially at that scale. When I signed the first printing of The Fault in Our Stars, I agreed to do that because the first printing of all my other books had been like 12,000 copies. So that's a few days of signing and not that difficult. But at the scale of something like I signed for the Anthropocene Reviewed, it does sort of start to feel a little distant. I think ultimately it is an attempt to say, here's a piece of paper that we both touch. Here is a small human thing in this otherwise heavily mechanized process. And then the other thing is that I feel a little jolt of joy every time I get a signed book, every time I see a signed book. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to tour for this book. I knew I wasn't going to be going from city to city. And this was one way of hopefully giving other people that little sense of joy. I think that's lovely. And I I mean, I already said it. I kind of I liked seeing that he clearly wrote his name on the book that I own. So I I understand that connection and I, I appreciate it. 500 hours it took him. Oh, boy. it's a lot of signing. That's John Green. There you go. Awesome. Stand-up guy. You know, I recommend the book. I guess I don't recommend it, reading it in one night, but, you know, you do what you do. <laughs> um, so that mm. is The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. Three stars. Three stars. Andrew, do you have any five-star games for us? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I do. Um, so we're doing something a little different this week, and I haven't cleared it with the rest of my podcast friends, but we're doing <laughs> what? it. The game this week is not something necessarily that I've created, but it's a game I've never played with you guys. Ooh. And maybe pages will like this game and play on their own. So I was introduced to this game. It's called Priorities, or at least the version of it that I know is called Priorities, uh, by my wife Jillian. Maybe you've heard of her and her friend Andy. And the way it works is typically it's best played with four people and you uh so it's often like two couples out to a dinner we'll play this game each person takes a turn um and say it was my turn and i was playing with hey the four of you the four of us together um everyone would make up a random or or pick a random item thing concept anything and put it into like the pot when so i would get three of things one from each of you and 
it would be up to me to rank them in my head and come up with a reason for the ranking. And then it would be up for to you as a group of three people to um, figure out how I would rank them. Mm. And then oh. you get points if you get it correct. And oftentimes the people's reasonings are, are wild. So I'd like to play a couple rounds of this with you guys. Is that okay? Yeah. It sounds like yeah. Cards Against Humanity without the cards. Kind and all, of. And all the vile content of Cards Against the Humanity. <laughs> yeah, all that sin. Um, <laughs> so the one wrinkle I threw in this time is that I created the list of things ahead of time from things that were either vaguely John Greenian, vaguely George Sondrian, or just felt like they'd be funny uh so you don't have to come up with things like that so i will not be taking a turn but toby you're up first are you ready yes i would put wire through my head as lowest priority all right well that's good that's not on your list so (laughs) i need to know what your i need you to think of and not to tell me your ranking of the following three things Uh utopian communities mary Uh todd lincoln and park benches oh boy you have it you have reasons for it um yeah hold on <laughs> what's the name of the actress who played mary todd in the in lincoln sally field S- sally field okay mm-hmm. um yeah okay got it all right bailey and dylan it's time yes. to figure out what, what, what we think his ranking would be it's park benches top mary todd lincoln second and utopian society's third you don't think he like likes utopian communities in like theory I think he's going to say that it, they will all lead to dystopian or something like that. I think he's going to put Mary Todd Lincoln first. She's a feminist icon. <laughs> I don't know. But, but he does like parks and he loves like camping. Um, I'm going to say Mary Todd park benches, utopian community. Okay. I'm, I'm happy with utopian communities in third. I think he was asking about Sally Field to see if he liked Sally Field. Um <laughs> So I think I'm more towards Bailey. Dylan, are you okay if we just do this democratically and and go with the one that has two votes? I mean, we can win or lose collectively, but this is all about vibes, man. All right. Okay, John Green. All right. (laughs) All right, Toby. All right. Our locked-in ranking is Mary Todd Lincoln, Park Benches, Uh Utopian Communities. Uh I I will say wild that you guys would vote against the guy who's known me since I was... 12 years old so uh dylan had it exactly right he had my reasoning exactly right for utopian communities um, <laughs> um so that's why utopian communities are at the bottom they're only a prelude to disaster um totalitarianism is is hiding in utopian communities and uh and yeah park benches are my top because i love a good park bench you sit in the yeah. sun you sit in the shade i love reading the dedications that can be on there sometimes they're sad sometimes they're weird and then uh, mary todd lincoln i really enjoyed uh, sally field's portrayal of her um in the in the lincoln movie don't know too much more about her than that but you know i like her better than utopian communities he literally so said to me that he was bummed that there was not enough park benches at echo park <laughs> <laughs> that's true uh, that's, wow good memory yeah i think dylan should get a point no, Dylan gets no points because it's an activity. Guys, I told you we were doing something different. <sighs> I will say, Dylan's Dylan, in the lead. That's on, hey, that's on me. I was the deciding vote here. I will say him asking about Sally Field really got in my head. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, okay, Bailey, are you ready for your turn? Yes. All right, here's your list. Communal singing, the wilderness, 
1998 Olympic Games, which were in Nagano. Okay, let me think. Okay, I'm ready. Dylan, see if you can go two for two. Uh, public singing Nagano w- Wilderness. Okay, you think she likes? Pu- she thinks she likes communal singing the best. <laughs> what's my re- what's my reasoning? Uh, I'm her husband. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, okay. um, uh, no. Because I was thinking about public singing because it could go either way. But I think she does like when large groups of people sing together. Uh, and mm-hmm. Nagano kind of falls into the Mary Todd thing where it's like, I'm sure if she thought about it, she could think of reasons she liked it or didn't like it one way or the other, unless there was a huge thing from Nagano, mm-hmm. but I don't well, 100% remember it. And Wilderness. I think that was the big figure skating one where it was like Tara Lipinski, Michelle Kwan. Oh, yeah. That, wait, that's right. I take, I take that back. Nagano's number one. Okay. You think Nagano's number one? And then I forgot, communal singing in the, in the Wilderness, all of the outdoor world. Wait. Is Johnny was Johnny Weir ninety eight? No, he was later. No, I'll, I'll put Nagato I, back in too. I'll argue also the wilderness is not all of the outside world. The wilderness is like the gnarly part of the outside world. Right. Are it's you, like scratchy bushes. That's fair. Are you happy with this ranking? I I will say I I'm her brother. I went to summer camp with her for many years. I think you're underestimating potentially underestimating what she'll think about wilderness. However, I'm happy as the one who messed up last time to yield this time. Oh, great. <laughs> so what what was what, what ranking were you two chuckleheads agreeing on? I think I'm sticking with public singing Nagano Wilderness. I'll go with that okay. as well. All right. It's locked in. Communal singing first, the Nagano 1998 Olympics second, and the Wilderness third. First of all, you're right out. I hate communal singing. That's at the bottom. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. See, I'm already feeling vindicated here. Because <laughs> uh, in my head, I thought like, if, if it's like, okay, for example, at work the other day, we all had to sing happy birthday to a, a guy who was working there who's 90 years old. And I felt so awkward singing in the group because I was like, everyone can hear that I'm off key. Oh, no. But your favorite thing was when we saw the bodyguard together and everyone sang to I will always love you. Stop trying to tell me what I think. This is the time for us is over. Dylan. <laughs> I'd like to unlock my answers. Uh, I think communal singing is is actually last. <laughs> All right, communal singing is definitely last. Then we got the the Nagano Olympics and we got wilderness. Now, in my head I was thinking, okay, 1998. I know that there was something figure skating related. But what I thought I my thought is is this is not um the Nancy Kerrigan um year and that to me would be unequivocally number 1. Yeah. Um, Tara Lipinski, well, fun, is not going to be number one. And the fact that I had to look it up to see, which is what I did just now, to confirm that that was the Tara Lipinski, Michelle Kwan one, doesn't doesn't bode well. So I'm going to go with wilderness number one because Whoa. I like the wilderness. I enjoy camping. Well, I enjoy going to camp. <laughs> I enjoy walking in yeah. the wilderness. And I enjoy creepy stories set in the wilderness, Ooh. such as Yellow Jackets, mm. which I'm really into, uh. as you know. So, yes. I forgot you can appreciate the concept of the wilderness. I forgot Yellow Jackets. Is it creepy? Yes, but I like creepy wilderness stories. I like That's the Blair Witch Project. So, yes, wilderness, okay. Olympics, communal singing, you all are wrong. Well, yeah, that's true. I'm the person who knows you the least well on this podcast, so I, I feel no shame. <laughs> I feel vindicated because I didn't fight and thus won. <laughs> no, I'm still going to fight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, 
Well, thank you for playing Priorities. This is a game you can play anywhere you want with your friends. The only thing is uh, you can add you can add more uh, add more based on who's there. But in, if you play it by yourself, you can make up your own, and everyone gets to put in whatever weird stuff they want. I liked it. That is a fun game. I ranked that one. I I ranked that game five stars. I also ranked that game five stars, and it's a game based on making choices. Dylan, <laughs> can you make some choices for us in the choosing? The choosing. I rate that transition four stars. Thank you. This is the only episode ever where I get to say the choosing first. I'll never do it again. I know you snaked me. All right, Dylan. <laughs> All right, the choosing. <laughs> choosing. Well, Andrew. Yeah, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting to give this to you for a long time, for almost 300 years. More than 300 years. Wait, no. no. What? 250 what? years. What's you know what, guys? Happening? I'm sorry. I'm just really bad with dates and times when it comes to history, especially American history, especially number 46, A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Okay. You didn't think I was going to land that. (laughs) I'm going to get my Chalamet on, go to a coffee shop, smoke a clove, and read it. (laughs) Don't smoke cloves, kids. I'm excited about this. I think this is on Bailey's shelf, too, and it's a big boy, but I have four weeks to read it, and so does Bailey now, on top of whatever else she has to do. (laughs) It is on my shelf. I feel I was nervous about it being chosen, but I'm prepared. I have time. Yeah. No, but I, I'm I'm excited. I don't know, Bill. You sound pretty confident about that. Yeah. You sound pretty prideful about that. Uh, you sound like number 77, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. <gasps> uh, it's finally come. Oh. It's happening. Oh, oh boy. Wow. Oh wow! All the pages around the world are screaming into their into the They're void. Screaming at their sleeping children because this yeah, is how screaming important into this their is. desktop computers. <laughs> They're screaming into their smart TVs that they listen to the podcast on. Uh, I this is one obviously, 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 obviously a lot of people love. I love. I feel like I've read it because I've seen so many adaptations <laughs> of it. But I have not read it. I tried to read it in college, and then I got distracted by having to read Moby Dick for another class, and I put it aside. Oh. And so now I'm finally going to read it, and I think it's on Andrew's list as well. So another one we'll be reading together. Wow. Yeah, I am uh, on the Bailey train. Yeah, I've read Pride and Prejudice five stars, obviously, but I haven't read People's History. I might, I might try. Okay. Ooh. Well, I rate that choosing five stars, and that means in two weeks on the podcast. Andrew and I will be reading Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, and Toby is reading Kindred by Octavia Butler. Oh, wow. Right. Great episode. I can That's already going to be, be a good episode. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List podcast. If listening to this podcast has given you a hankering for rating, you know what you can do. You can head right <laughs> over to. Uh, Apple iTunes and rate this podcast five freaking stars. It helps with the visibility of the podcast. Um, we get like a little chocolate. It like drops out of the middle of the air in front of us, wherever we are. It's really cool. Um, and if you write a review, um, then we get a hug from a stranger. So that's nice too. So I don't like do hugs that. from strangers. Yeah, well, you get one. I mean, <laughs> that's what happens when you start a podcast. 
And if you're looking for a different way that doesn't result in us getting hugged by a stranger to help us out, you can (laughs) tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your family member after you've raided them at Thanksgiving dinner and gone through all (laughs) 10 generations there eating turkey to listen to this podcast. Honestly, Thanksgiving that large would be a fertile ground for new listeners. (laughs) And word of mouth is our best way of finding new folks. Thank you. Yes. Andrew's loopy. I love it. <laughs> Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books, books. books. books.